From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. Creating a new drug, treatment, or lifestyle recommendation is not done overnight. It can take many years for researchers to perform the clinical trials necessary to demonstrate that a treatment is safe and effective. In a clinical trial, participants receive specific interventions according to the research plan or protocol created by the investigators. These interventions may be medical products, such as drugs or devices, procedures, or changes to a participant's behavior, such as a diet. On this week's episode, we talk with Dr. Julie Burring about her career working on clinical trials. Dr. Burring is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital and a professor of epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. The primary focus of her research is on prevention of chronic diseases, especially among women. Dr. Burring has been involved in the design, conduct, analysis, and interpretation of many large-scale randomized clinical trials, looking at the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease, cancer, and other chronic diseases. These include the Women's Health Study, evaluating the preventative roles of aspirin and vitamin E, the Physician's Health Study 2, evaluating vitamin E, vitamin C, beta carotene, and a multivitamin, and VITAL, an ongoing trial of vitamin D and fish oil. Hello, Dr. Burring. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Can you tell us how you got started in your field? Well, actually, my path to becoming an epidemiologist and conducting clinical trials has not exactly been a straight line. I was a statistics major when I was in college. But I knew I wanted to apply the statistics to something related to health, but I had no idea what or how. Then my advisor told me about epidemiology, and I had never even heard the word before. But I found out that the root word of epidemiology is actually epidemics. Why do some people get a disease and other people do not? Why are some people at greater risk of heart disease or cancer or depression or diabetes? Is it related to their genes or how they live, their environment, or to both genetics and environment together? And most importantly, if we could understand what these risk factors are, then could people change their risk factors and ultimately reduce the risk of developing these outcomes? So this started me on my path to getting my doctorate in epidemiology and focusing my research on conducting clinical trials. You talk about the evolution of how you came to pursue epidemiology and that it led into conducting clinical trials. Over the years, what has continued to drive your interest in clinical trials? You know, I think that I am more enthused about uh, conducting clinical trials than ever. I believe there's so many clinical and public health questions that are still unanswered whether we do a particular lifestyle change, whether we take a particular drug, oftentimes these interventions are very promising, but they're still as yet unproven. So I still believe that trials are a really unique study design to allow us to answer these questions 
and the questions are as timely and as important as ever. What is a clinical trial and why do we need to do them? A clinical trial is actually the closest thing we have to conducting a laboratory experiment in humans. So let's say you're a healthy person. You've never had any diagnosis of heart disease. And you want to know whether if you take a dietary supplement, like a multivitamin or vitamin D or vitamin C or vitamin E, will you reduce your risk of developing heart disease for the very first time? So one thing that we investigators could do is to simply observe people like you in the community. We could compare people who choose to take these dietary supplements and people who choose to not take them. And then we could follow both of these groups over time and see whether there's a difference in terms of the rate at which they get heart disease. And this is called an observational study. But the problem is that people do many things as part of their lifestyle. Those who choose to take vitamin D, for example, might also choose to be eating a diet that's low in fat, or exercising, or seeing their healthcare provider frequently. And all of these things in themselves could be lowering their risk of developing heart disease. So what we really want to do is an experiment. We want to take two groups of people who are similar to each other in terms of their risk factors for heart disease, and the only thing that's different between them is one group will be asked to take a vitamin D supplement, and the other group will be asked not to take a vitamin D supplement. And then we will compare the heart disease rates over time in these two groups, which are similar in terms of their heart disease risk factors, but just differ in terms of their receiving the intervention or not. And this is a clinical trial. Is it ethical to do clinical trials? You talk about assigning um, people at random to receive different interventions, but what about the ethics behind that? That's a really good question. Ethical issues are so important to consider in a clinical trial because in clinical trials, we are actually intervening in someone's life. We are giving them an intervention or a treatment that they might not have received that day otherwise if they hadn't been in our trial. And the key ethical issue to consider is a word that's called equipoise. And the bottom line of equipoise is at the time that we start the study, the evidence that we have available in the literature does not answer the question as to whether this intervention is effective or not. We do not yet know the answer to a question that is important and timely, like whether vitamin D prevents heart disease. So ethically, we want and need to provide that information. Because if vitamin D does prevent chronic disease, then people should know this so more people can consider taking it. And if vitamin D doesn't prevent chronic disease, then people should know that also so they can be focusing on other measures that have been proven to reduce risk of heart disease. During an ongoing trial, there is actually an oversight group in place, which is called the Data and Safety Monitoring Board. And the sole focus of this board is to protect the participants in the trial. The board is completely external to the trial. It's made up of individuals who have no financial or personal interest in the results of the trial. 
but they have critical expertise in areas such as statistics or ethics or medicine. And they monitor the data in the trial to make sure that nothing has changed in terms of equipoise being present, that the question is still timely, that it's still important, and it's still unanswered, and that the data being collected are of high quality. If this is no longer true, the Data Safety and Monitoring Board actually makes a recommendation to the funding agency to modify the trial or even to stop it. How do you plan a clinical trial? Well, the specifics of planning a trial really depend on the specifics of the questions that are being evaluated in that trial. For example, let's say that we want to do a clinical trial of a new treatment for those with lung cancer. Then the first approach to getting participants could be to inform oncologists in hospitals and the community about this clinical trial opportunity and suggest that they might want to inform their patients. Or we could put an informational brochure about the study in oncology waiting rooms. But on the other hand, if we want to test whether a particular type of diet will prevent colon cancer over time, then our participants will be people without a diagnosis of colon cancer. And how do we identify these potential participants and invite them to be part of our study? Perhaps we can get a list of those living in that community and mail to them a letter of invitation to participate. Or perhaps we can use print media or social media to inform the community. But basically, we will try to use any cost-efficient approach that would be effective in informing potential participants about this opportunity. Then how many people would we need in our trial, and how long would the trial last? Well, again, that depends on the research question. So let's say we're interested in a new drug for people who are having a heart attack. And this new drug is to be given as quickly as possible by emergency medical technicians. And our hope is that the new drug will reduce the risk of this person dying before they reach the hospital. Well, clearly, such a trial would focus primarily on the first hours or first couple days after the onset of a heart attack. And thus, this trial would be much shorter than a trial that's testing whether after the person leaves the hospital, should we change their diet? And if we change their diet, will it reduce their risk of having a second heart attack over the next few years? And the particular intervention that a participant receives in the trial is assigned by what we call randomization, meaning that which intervention or drug each participant receives is actually determined entirely by chance, and each eligible participant would have an opportunity to receive any of the interventions. How do you then work with participants during the trial? Well, probably the most important priority of an ongoing trial is to keep in as close contact with the participants as possible during the trial, to help them be as compliant as they possibly can be with the intervention under study, and to assist them in overcoming any barriers or difficulties they are experiencing as part of the trial. To get information on their compliance and their health, we regularly send them questionnaires, or we interview them by phone, or we see them in the clinic. We send them newsletters, so there is a feeling of community 
among all those participating in the trial. We send them small tokens of appreciation, such as a study keychain or a coffee mug. We send them birthday cards, and we send them best wishes for the holidays. And everything we do during the trial is to communicate as clearly as we can to each and every participant that while we might have a very important scientific question, if they are not willing and able to comply or adhere with the intervention, we will not be able to answer the question definitively. Are clinical trials always necessary? Not at all. Um, For example, when penicillin was first discovered and introduced into medical care, its benefit on survival from pneumococcal pneumonia was so large and so striking that no clinical trial was needed to demonstrate that. But most interventions that we are going to be testing are not magic bullets like penicillin was. Most interventions being evaluated for prevention of cancer, like vitamin D, for example, will not wipe out cancer. But if they could reduce the risk of cancer by only 20%, that would be of great public health importance. So the special role of clinical trials is when we are looking at the effects of an intervention that are small to moderate in size, but so important clinically and with regard to public health. What kinds of trials do you do? I'm actually very interested in the idea of prevention. Are there simple things that we can do to reduce our risk of developing diseases for the very first time? So in our trials, we wanted to evaluate whether taking low-dose aspirin every day would it decrease our risk of having our first heart attack or our first stroke or dying from these diseases. And again, we're talking about people in these preventive trials who have never had a heart attack or a stroke before. They may have risk factors. They may smoke or have high blood pressure, elevated cholesterol, don't do any physical activity but they have not been diagnosed with cardiovascular disease. So we started two trials to evaluate this, the Physicians' Health Study of 22,000 male physicians and the Women's Health Study of about 40,000 female health professionals. Can you give us a high-level overview of the Physicians' Health and the Women's Health Studies? The Physicians' Health Study and the Women's Health Study are both randomized trials, and they're both randomized trials that included aspirin. So the Physician's Health Study was a trial of low-dose aspirin, a standard 325-milligram tablet, and beta-carotene, the vegetable form of vitamin A, in the prevention of cardiovascular disease and cancer. This trial was conducted in males only, and it was conducted by U.S. male. In other words, it was nobody came into the clinic for this trial. It started in the early 1980s, and the aspirin part of the trial ended after five years of treatment. The women's health study is very analogous to that. It is a trial of low-dose aspirin, but now even lower, 100 milligrams every other day, and vitamin E. And this was started in the early 1990s, so 10 years after the physician's health study was started. This trial was done in female health professionals, and it ended after 10 years of treatment of aspirin. And why did you specifically choose health professionals? You know, that's a very, very good question, and it had a lot to do with logistics. Um, At the time we started the Physician's Health Study, we knew 
that we were going to have to do this trial as cost-effectively as possible. With it being aspirin, which is a generic drug, it wasn't likely that we were going to get a huge amount of funding to be able to do this study. So we decided what we'd like to do is do it by mail, meaning that we would send out the pills to the participants, and we could send them out a questionnaire to ask about their health care and have them return it to us. This was actually the first time a trial by mail had been done, and we were a little hesitant about that. In other words, if there were side effects, we were worried that the participants may not know that they needed to go um, see someone. If we were asking about you know, 25 or 50 different diagnoses, we were afraid that we would have to explain each one so that the participant would know whether they had been diagnosed or not. So we decided that the best thing to do in the first time that we did this was to use people that had more medical knowledge or health knowledge than the general population. So we picked physicians for our first population, but we weren't able to just do physicians for our second women's population because there actually weren't 40,000 physicians female in that age group for us to include. So we broadened it to female health professionals. After this, we've been doing trials in the general population, but the first time that you do it, it was just important to do it with a safety net of having people who are very health conscious and understood aspirin. Why did you choose to study aspirin? Actually, for two reasons, one scientific and one logistic. And the scientific reason is when you're starting a trial, you try to identify what is the unanswered question that you will attempt to evaluate in your trial. At the time that we started these two trials, we knew a lot about aspirin and cardiovascular disease, but in other populations. We knew that if you had someone who had already suffered a heart attack or stroke, that if they took low-dose aspirin, it would significantly reduce their risk of having a second heart attack, a second stroke, or dying from this event. And we knew that if someone was in the middle of having a heart attack, taking an aspirin crushed or chewed within the first few hours of the onset of pain would also reduce their risk of having another event or dying from this event. But what about a healthy person that may or may not have a heart attack or a stroke 5, 10, 15, 20 years in the future? Should they be taking aspirin? What are the benefits and what are the risks? The second was logistic. Aspirin is simple, it's well-known, it's inexpensive, and every drug, though, has side effects. So aspirin may increase your risk of bleeding, sometimes very seriously, uh, gastrointestinal bleeding, bleeding into the brain, and we really needed to understand the risks and the benefits of aspirin in preventing heart disease in healthy people. What did the participants have to do in the trial? When I summarize it, it actually sounds very simple. They needed to take a pill a day from a convenient calendar pack. Aspirin was every other day, but we also had another agent that we were testing in this trial. And because the trial was done by mail, they had to fill out a questionnaire and send it back to us on a regular basis. But this was for a long time. When you're dealing with prevention, most healthy people don't have heart attack or stroke. And so it was like five to 10 years that they would be in this trial. 
And in terms of taking the pills, healthy people are not as accustomed to taking a pill on a regular basis as someone who already has the disease. So it is more difficult for them to do something which may sound very simple, but for someone who isn't used to it, it actually can be very difficult. How did they do and how did this help them? They actually did great. In the women's health study, for example, after 10 years, 80% of them were still taking their pills. And everybody helped everybody. So the participants helped other participants. Remember, this is by mail. So it wasn't that they saw each other on a regular basis. But what they did do is give us pictures of themselves holding their calendar pack, being on vacation, working, um, showing that you could be part of a trial. You can be part of the solution. You can come up with an answer, and you can still live your life on a regular basis. What we did is also try to help. And we wanted them to feel, to know how important they were to the success of the study. So as I said, we packed the pills and calendar packs, sort of have a date on it so you can look at it, see if you've taken it today or not. Very easy, easy to transport. We sent them newsletters on a regular basis. We sent them small incentives, whether it would be a little magnifying glass or a keychain, just something with the study name on it. And a very sweet story from this is in the physician's health study that were in, was in male physicians. We sent them a tie, a necktie, that had the logo of the physician's health study. And at one point, the wife of one of the male physicians contacted us to tell us that her husband had died and said that he was a longstanding member of the physician's health study. And he was so attached to the study that he asked that the tie that he would be dressed in at the end would be the tie from the physician's health study. What happened when the trial completed? When the trial completed, it's a very, very busy time, both scientifically and logistically. First and foremost, you have to think about the participants. They are the people that have done the work. They are the people who have allowed you to have an answer to the question. They are the ones that you have safeguarded all this time. So you first must put yourself in their position and figure out how to best, um, best manage the end of the trial. So scientifically, what we needed to do is to inform them of the results of the trial before they read it in the newspaper or in the media or heard it on the nightly news. And we needed to tell them whether they had been assigned to active aspirin or placebo. This is the first thing that we needed to do. The results had to come from us, not be read in a newspaper. Well, that meant time was of, an es was of the essence because this paper was going to be published very quickly. The journal felt that it was important enough to expedite it, to get it out quickly. But we had 22,000 people that we needed to inform. And the only way to do it, because they weren't here in person, was to write them a letter. And we wanted that letter to go as quickly as possible and to look very personal so that they would open it and find out the results. So we decided we wanted to go first class, not bulk. We decided we wanted to put a stamp on it, not just meter it. So I always think about that, as the, that year as the Christmas that never happened because our entire office spent the entire period of time putting 22,000 stamps on letters so we could get them out as quickly as possible. Meanwhile was the science. 
So we needed to craft our message very, very carefully to reflect the most valid take-home message from our trial. And the message was absolutely not that everybody should be on aspirin. The message was that it was very important to consider with your healthcare provider to consider whether you should be aspirin or not as part of other things that you were doing to reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease, whether it be stop smoking, controlling your blood pressure, controlling your cholesterol level, losing weight, et cetera. So back a second to time being of an essence, not only did the participants need this message, the healthcare providers needed this message because we had just told the participants to go talk to their healthcare provider. The healthcare providers were going to understandably feel at a disadvantage if they didn't have at least the basic results when their patient came in and said, here's what I was on, what should I do next? So again, it was a back and forth between getting the message to the people who needed it the most very early before the article came out and then was reported in the media. So I guess the findings from a trial have to be considered by many different kinds of people. It's going to be other researchers who are working in this area. It's going to be the healthcare providers. It's going to be the participants. It's going to be the public. It's going to be the media. It's going to be regulatory agencies. And everybody is going to need to have the findings translated into the pieces that are most important for them. So that what I learned very clearly in this is that part of our job is also to communicate and to communicate as honestly and as clearly as possible. Do you think that clinical trials are worth the work? Absolutely. Um, yes, they are more complicated than studies where we just observe what people do rather than intervening. And yes, they are more costly, more time-consuming, and more logistically difficult than any other type of epidemiologic study. And yes, they have crucial ethical issues that must be considered. But if they are ethically appropriate and they are well-designed and conducted, clinical trials are going to provide a level of evidence about the effect of the treatment or the intervention itself that just cannot be achieved by any other study design. And whether the trial demonstrates that an intervention is effective or whether it definitively demonstrates that an intervention is not effective, a clinical trial can provide a level of evidence that can translate into clinical and public health recommendations. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Burring. It has been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you for having me. Next time on Think Research. How do we begin our research uh, with the community um, in the forefront of our mind? Uh, and so there are barriers to overcome, but how do we design our interventions that they're really appealing to uh, the community, whether that's the kids themselves, the parents, or uh, the practitioners who are implementing uh, the intervention? Dr. Rebecca Lee talks about her work with the Harvard Prevention Research Center around finding community-based solutions to improve nutrition and physical activity. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, 
SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.